Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. Hi, Sarah. How are you doing? Good, Ben. How are you? I am well, thank you. Got quite a a news announcer voice going on. Well, I am 30 now, so (laughs) this is just how I talk. All right. Well, it'll be a treat for the listeners' ears, I think. Mm. It's been a busy week and weekend for us. Yes. We will be moving end of July. Yes. We got approved for our new place over the weekend, uh, the day before my birthday, which when... Which was the universe saying, happy birthday, Ben, you get a house to live in. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, my birthday was on the 21st, uh, the summer solstice. Yeah, it was just, there was just a lot going on. Yeah. We saw this place that we're getting on the Thursday, and we let our landlords know we were intending to move that evening, but we didn't get approved for this place until Saturday afternoon. So the period in between those two events was a little bit anxiety-inducing, and we were continuing to see other places, but then it was like, oh, okay, no, we're good, we're good. Yeah. And to clarify, we're renting this place. We're not buying a house. I wanted to make sure it was said on the podcast, because um, if there are any disruptions to our posting schedule and anything like that, um, that would explain why, and we'll keep everyone updated on Twitter, but we don't anticipate any major disruptions, because we usually have a buffer episode. Right. So, probably we'll be fine, but... You know, it's good to just have good communication. You're right. It's important to call your shot so that when we miss that episode and we say, oh, it's because we were moving, nobody thinks that we're lying. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think anyone would think that, Hmm. but you never know. Um, Well, what are we watching this week, Ben? This week's movie, Sarah, is The Maze from 1953, directed by William Cameron Menzies, who directed Invaders from Mars. Yeah, which was last week's movie. Um, had a good discussion about that movie. Yeah, there was a lot to talk about. I yeah. am looking forward to seeing if the maze is as... Rich? Yes. Yeah, I think it will be, because it sounds like the source material is rich and definitely up Menzies' alley. To talk about today's movie, there's a lot of, I think, interesting background material to cover. I think where we're going to start is by talking about the film's producer, Walter Mirisch. So Mirisch was born in 1921 in New York City to a um, like middle-class Jewish immigrant family, like his dad was a tailor. And the wild thing about Walter Mirisch is that he is still alive today. He is Whoa. 98 years old. Good job, dude. Um, And still... He ate his spinach when he was a child. Not only is he still alive today, but he's still head of production for the Mirsch Company here in 2020. I can't remember the last time the Mirsch Company put out a movie, but he's still the guy. Nice. So, back in 
the 40s. He graduated with a master's degree in business administration from Harvard. And after graduating, he became assistant to Steve Broidy, the head of Monogram Pictures. Okay. He argued to Broidy that the days of low-budget pictures were ending, that there was no future in making cheap movies, uh, and that Monogram should start trying for like some higher-budget offerings, like less movies released per year, but each one with like higher budgets, okay. rather than cranking out tons and tons of cheap stuff. Mirsch called this idea B-plus pictures. <laughs> nice. Broidy ended up being convinced, and so he allowed Mirsch to start a new production unit at Monogram called Allied Artists Productions uh, for the purpose of producing these higher-budget films. Since the Monogram name was kind of associated with, like, lower-budget product, and part of the reason for making higher-budget films is to, like, have a classier image, I guess you could say, so you have a new label... To put them under. Totally. Mears produced his first film in 1947 at the age of 26. At a time when the average monogram picture cost $90,000, AAP's first release cost $1.2 million. Much higher budget. Um, not all of AAP's movies would be made for that kind of money, but that was what the first one cost. The Dawn of Television in the late 40s, proved Mirsch's prediction correct. Uh, as we saw all the other studios getting rid of their B-movie departments and, you know, focusing on less releases per year. And so in 1952, Monogram basically, like, switched to only producing AAP pictures. They dropped the Monogram name. They fully rebranded as Allied Artists Productions, and became a new thing, essentially. Under Mirsch, AAP headed in a new, ambitious direction, although some of Monogram's, like, reliably profitable movie series did continue under the AAP name. Stuff like uh, the Bowery Boys. Uh, so despite this new ambition, AAP was not immune to the new sci-fi trend of the early 50s, uh, nor were they immune to still making the occasional low-budget quickie, as evidenced by their film Flight to Mars in 1951, which was shot in five days using leftover sets from Rocket Ship XM, the low-budget mockbuster ripoff of Destination Moon. Okay. So that's a ripoff, two movies removed. Yeah. So... AAP had Walter as executive in charge of production, and he also brought on his brother Harold as head of sales, and his other brother Marvin as treasurer. Oh, nepotism. <laughs> so, that brings us to the production of The Maze, which is an allied artist's production, and it fits the zeitgeist of the time in that it was produced in 3D. But, in other aspects, it's almost like a throwback in terms of horror movies mm -hmm. and what it's about, because it's kind of a gothic horror. Yeah, 
I don't think we've had a gothic horror in 3D before. No, not in 3D. So I'm pretty stoked. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the source material here? Sure. So the novel, The Maze, was published in 1945 and was written by Maurice Sandoz, a Swiss author and kind of, you know, I think you could say one of the most interesting men in the world. Oh. Maurice Yves Sandoz was born in 1892 in Basel, Switzerland. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, to Edward Sandoz, an entrepreneur in textile dyes and later pharmaceuticals. The Sandoz family was a family of go-getters. Okay. Um, with his grandfather uh, being the famous surgeon Matthias Mayer, um, his uncle being painter Emile Francois David, and his brother Edward Marcel Sandoz becoming a notable sculptor. Okay. And of course his dad yeah. being an entrepreneur and yeah. creating a, a huge company that still exists today. Oh, what's, what, what's that company? Um, well, it was called Sandoz. Now it's called Novartis. Okay. Um, which is like a pharmaceutical company. Sure. So the family was fairly wealthy, and Maurice became kind of a man of learning. Uh, he was very interested in science, mathematics, literature, music. He earned a doctorate in chemistry from the University of Lausanne in 1916 and started to work as a chemist, uh, mainly with dyes, um, since that's what his father's company was in. Right, sure. He also would moonlight as a composer and as a writer of surrealist literature. Surrealist literature. Surrealist literature. Okay. An eye condition that he developed um, caused Sanders to have to step away from his work as a chemist, and this is when he really focused on his writing ambitions. He would travel frequently, um, so his first bits of writing are uh, travel writing, and he would meet Salvador Dali in 1930s Rome, oh. and they bonded over surrealism in art and literature. Sure. For Sanders, um, surrealism in literature and in his literature kind of is demonstrated with any kind of mystery in his novels being explained as not supernatural, but as a rational explanation that is just as absurd and unbelievable as a supernatural explanation. Okay. So, like, it's not a ghost. It's, I don't know, like a living piece of seaweed flying around or something. I think, like, um, you know, with, like, Scooby-Doo, mm -hmm. where, like, when it's the spooky monster, like, it's flying at you and it's doing things like passing through walls, but then you get the explanation and it's like, oh, there was, like... Uh, a wire that they were flying in on, or right. um, it was like an illusion that they passed through the wall or whatever. But the way that those illusions or the trip wires or anything like that are done is like in such an unbelievable manner right. that you're like, mm, I don't think that's true. Right. It wasn't a ghost. It was my advanced artificial intelligence hologram system. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, some of his writings include uh, the short story collections Fantastic Memories, published in 1944, and On the Verge, published in 1949, 
the novels The Maze, like I said, in 1945, um, The House Without Windows, published in 1950, and he also wrote plays, one of the uh, most well-known, even though most of his stuff isn't very well-known, um, is The Curse of Radons in 1928. Okay. Maurice Sandoz strikes me as someone who like had a lot of like passions and interests in life and just kind of followed like all of them as his fancy went that way. Um, he never did writing or composing or anything like that for um to try to make a living out of it because his family was already so rich he didn't have to worry about like making the rent at the end of the day yeah i mean when you're wealthy you can just explore your hobbies to you know as great or little a degree as you want yeah so he strikes me as someone who dabbled in these Mm -hmm. things but it's still very cool how he like went into like science and composing music and like writing it's it's a very interesting life to me for sure for the maze um it has kind of a a frame narrative and is definitely a ghost gothic story with a surrealist bent i couldn't find a full synopsis that kind of explained the mystery at the end but i do Mm. have kind of the the setup and everything And the inspiration for the maze came from a Scottish castle Mm -hmm. and its monster, or legend of a monster. Sure. Uh, I'm speaking of Glarm's Castle and uh, the Glarm's Monster uh, in the Scottish Lowlands. I'm guessing you've checked that pronunciation, huh? Because that sure ain't how it's spelt. Yeah, it's spelt Glamis, but uh, this, this be Scottish, Ben. Yeah, okay. Around the 1840s is when the first rumors of a monster within the castle's walls kind of started. And the idea, or the core of the rumor, was that in this castle there's a secret chamber with a secret monster who actually is the rightful heir to the Earl of Strathmore. But he's so hideous they've had to lock him away. Right, yeah. So it's believed that this monster... Or at least according to the legend. Sure. Because there's no evidence at all. Yeah. It's all just rumors and hearsay. Mm-hmm. Um, that Thomas Bowes Lyon, uh, Lord Glarms, and his wife Charlotte Grimstead's first son didn't actually die in childbirth, but was actually born deformed. So this child um, did actually exist. Uh, he was born October 21st, 1821. And um, born and died that day. And part of the reason why people are like, well, what if this kid actually lived and was hidden away because he's deformed is because there's a rumor that a midwife who helped with the delivery knew that or saw that the kid was healthy. Mm -hmm. And so it's suspicious that he died later that day. Right. And then the other part of this rumor is that there's no tombstone for the kid. I can see, here's the thing, I can see why someone would be like, well, there's no tombstone, so he didn't die. Right. Except that this is, like, the 1820s, Yeah. when kids dying in childbirth was quite common, and even kids, like, children dying was common. Yeah, infant mortality rate was huge. Yeah, so most, it, it was actually quite rare for there to be even a funeral for a dead child, um... 
really only once you reached maturity became an adult would there be a tombstone or a funeral for you. Yeah, like, if you're having, like, eight kids in your life and, like, six out of eight of them don't make it past, like, two or three days old, you're not shelling out for a tombstone for each one of those. Yeah, I mean, like, these people can afford it. Sure, but, but like... But it's also, like, even for someone in their economic bracket... Yeah, well, it's just it, it the, would be odd. It's just the custom of the time, right? Like, you wouldn't even think of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The other part of this rumor with the midwife being like, well, that kid was healthy when I left, is like, <laughs> wouldn't that midwife then be able to say, like, and he was deformed as fuck? Right, right, right. Like, be able to confirm that part of the rumor? Anyways, sure. whatever. But we also, like, it sounds like this midwife... Like, there's no, like, actual record of even what her name was. Right, right. So, like, this midwife may also be fictitious Absolutely. herself. So the rumor of um, this child, whose name was also Thomas, was that he was born deformed, kind of resembling a toad. And as the years went on, um, especially by around, like, 1830-ish, the rumors of um, this creature being locked up in the castle... Um, really got stoked by this writer named Walter Scott, who published oh. an account of his stay there um, in 1830. Once Walter Scott popularized that rumor, it kind of grew and grew, and um, the creature, this monster, was rumored to resemble a toad, have an enormous chest, be hairy, have no neck, and have short and small arms and legs. Mm-hmm. Um, again, no actual sightings of said monster. Right. The closest you would get is um, someone is maybe working the the mansion or is staying there for the night as a guest, and they discover a secret passage, like a trap door underneath the carpet or whatever. Right. And they go down, and at the end of the passageway, they see some kind of shadowy figure moving around. The next morning, they mention this, and at least for the people who worked there, they would be mysteriously let go Sure. In one case, uh, strongly encouraged to immigrate to Australia. <laughs> I mean, it's an old... <laughs> what the fuck? It's an old castle. They're all filled with crazy secret passages. That exactly. doesn't mean there's a strange monster inside. Now, you'd think that, you know, th these, these rumors are completely baseless. But why have they persisted? Mm-hmm. Well... The family themselves uh, would be, like, either very secretive and, like, not want to talk about it at all, or be like, oh, yeah, there's a secret. Yeah, I'll tell you, like, when I'm drunk, and then they never say anything. Right, well, I mean, you so know. So kind of encouraging it or just, like, trying to completely stamp it down. You can make a lot of money by, like, having people come to your house and go on tours and stay the night. You gotta make, you know, your struggling noble family that can't, you know, <laughs> afford to upkeep your giant crumbling castle. You gotta yep. make that tourist dollars. Exactly. Ding, ding, ding. Ben has it on the money. So, fun fact, um, to help upkeep big castles and stuff like this, this was incredibly common in England, so presumably also in Scotland, rich families would allow tours of their homes because they'd be off, like... Somewhere else, in one mm -hmm. of their other cottages or places right. where they own whatever. Yeah. Um, so you'd pay, like, a penny, go in, see see the sites. For 
Glorm's castle. Like, it's huge, um, it's old, it, it's a castle, it's dark and domineering, it's on the Scottish lowlands, there's a right. lot of atmosphere. Yeah. So, of course, the family would encourage this type of thing. It's also very, um, capital R romantic mm. idea for this aristocratic family having a deep, dark secret. And like, oh, only three people could ever know. And uh, the secret has been lost because they kept it on their deathbed. Right. Once yeah. I learned of the secret, I have never been the same since. Right, yeah. But that's the inspiration for the maze. I heard a funny story about Glarm's Castle and the, the monster of Glarm's Castle that, like, it's just one of those, like, who knows if this actually happened, but it's like one of those anecdotes that you tell to add to the, to the mystery, right? Where like a bunch of people went to like stay the weekend or stay the night or whatever. And they're like, okay, well we're going to, we're going to figure out where the secret room is. Cause like, you know, the frog boy was bricked up in some room. Right now. I mean, the other thing about like how long this legend has lasted is like, okay, well, even if I'm going to believe that this frog boy kid was born in 1821 or wherever, like, so he's dead. He's dead by now. If he, if he existed, he's dead by now. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing with this rumor. So apparently um, by like the early 1900s yeah. is when Glorm's Castle started to like be a bit more open and like being not so secretive mm-hmm. anymore. And people were like, huh, counting back the years. Ah, so Frogboy's dead. And right. they don't have anything to hide anymore. Right. So this group decided like, okay we're going to figure out where the secret bricked up room is, right? So they went around the whole castle covering the windows with towels, Yes, I, I think. read about this, yeah. And then, like, the plan was, was once they had all the windows covered with towels to, like, go to the outside of the castle and see if they could spot any windows that weren't covered. And they could spot, like, a ton, apparently. Yeah. Which doesn't surprise me because, like, frog boy or no frog boy, like, old castles have plenty of secret rooms yeah with the idea of like a places to hide your valuables mm-hmm. or something like that or hey you're under siege yes. and people coming in to come and like pillage your castle yeah. now you have places to hide exactly yeah exactly so the novel the maze goes um like i said it has a frame narrative and it has a narrator telling a story of um casually bumping into an edith murray and Edith telling the narrator this story. Right, okay. So apparently Edith's niece, Kitty, okay. is engaged to marry Gerald McTeam. The McTeams of Craven's Castle. Oh. Yeah. As it goes, Gerald inherits the castle. And upon doing that and going to the castle to, you know, organize affairs, whatever, he abruptly breaks off the engagement with Kitty. So Edith goes to the castle to investigate and starts wandering through these secret passageways. Now, in the synopses that I could find of this book, um, no one kind of went into detail of, like, what the secret or mystery is. Like, why did Gerald break off the engagement? I have no idea. And people were unclear in their writing whether the titular maze is of these hidden corridors within the castle, or if there's just a straight-up maze, like, the Shining style out front, which was also a common, like, feature of old castles. Well, I can tell you from what I know of the movie that it's a straight-up Shining style hedge maze. 
Perfect. Um, and as for what the horrible mystery secret is, I mean, given that it's based on the monster of Glorms, I'm guessing there's a frog boy in here somewhere. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking too. Like I said earlier about Sandoz's take on surrealist literature um, and the like explanation of the mystery being where his surrealism really seemed to come into play. The other reason why I think people say that his works are surrealist is because Salvador Dali illustrated pretty much every single one of them. Oh, including wow. Including the maze. Oh, wow. Yeah. Shit. I didn't know Salvador Dali did book illustrations. Yeah. Or, like, the illustrations to this book. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah, so it's pretty neat. I want to find Salvador Dali's, like, frog boy drawing. <laughs> so, Maurice Sandoz, um would pass away in 1958 at 66 years old. He and his brother, Edward Marcel, uh, would be kind of commemorated uh, with this foundation, um, foundation of Edward and Maurice Sandoz, um, which was founded in 1982 to encourage Swiss creatives in a variety of outlets. So that's kind of his legacy. Um, Rather than any of his literary works or even his musical works, Murray Sandoz's legacy is mainly this foundation. Okay, cool. So this movie kind of has an odd distinction in that it is one of the first movies whose scripts mention the science of teratology, which is the study of deformities in humans, both birth defects and deformities brought on by, like, you know, exposure to environmental hazards and, and things like that, right? throughout development. Um, It also mentions the theory of prenatal phylogenic evolution, which we kind of talked about, I think, when we talked about the Neanderthal man. The idea that the fetus goes through the stages of evolution while it's developing? Yes. The bonkers fucking theory? So... This theory was really popular, sort of came about in the mid-19th century. It was really popular towards the end of the 19th century, along with other pseudoscience ideas around evolution, like um, phrenology and things like that. Yeah. Um, By the mid-20th century, it was, like, scientifically debunked, but like a lot of things that are sort of scientifically popular for a while and then get debunked, it continued on in the public consciousness as, like, pop science, Sure. For a while after. Sort of that thing about like, oh, you only use 10% of your brain. And it's like, no, you don't. That's stupid. You use all of your brain. Why would you? That's not what that means. Like, you use 10% of your brain at a time, maybe. But it's not like, oh, if we unlocked 100%, we'd be super beings. It's like, no, it's just you don't use the section for pooping at the same time as you use the section for, like, fucking. Like, there's different... (laughs) You, I mean, some people might. Right, but like... Don't yuck people's yum. No, I'm going to yuck that yum. <laughs> um, so this idea that, like, the fetus goes through these different stages of evolution continued on in public consciousness for a long time. And you can see these drawings of fetal development that were done in the 1800s where they're pointing out, like, see, like, this is a fish, and this is a frog, and this is a rabbit, and this is a... Um, <laughs> I'm so sorry, ma'am, but your kid stayed a rabbit. (laughs) (laughs) I hope you have some investment in the carrot industry. (laughs) And that's how Bugs Bunny came to be. (laughs) Gross. 
So the director of this film, as we mentioned, is William Cameron Menzies, uh, familiar to us as the director of Invaders from Mars, which was covered in our previous episode. The Maze would be his final feature film that he would design and direct, uh, although he would direct some episodes of a TV show in 1955, and he would also produce the film Around the World in 80 Days in 1957. However, uh, he would not live to see the completion of that film, as he passed away from cancer that year. But, you know, at least the maze actually is in 3D, not like Invaders from Mars, where the rug was kind of pulled out from under him at the last moment. The film's star uh, is a familiar face, uh, Richard Carlson, who we know from The Amazing Mr. X, and It Came From Outer Space. Okay. The maze was his, like, direct follow-up to It Came From Outer Space. And in that film, of course, he was the, the lead character trying to get everyone to believe him about the, the aliens down in the quarry. And now he's going to try to get people to believe him about Frog Boy down in the maze. Right. Another familiar face in the cast is Michael Pate, who we saw in villainous roles in The Strange Door and The Black Castle. Uh, he was sort of henchman in both of those. Uh, more familiar faces in the cast include Hilary Brooke, who we just saw as the mom in Invaders from Mars, as well as actress Lillian Bond. Now, we first saw Lillian at age 24, way back in 1932's The Old Dark House. Oh, dang. She played Gladys, the chorus girl who comes in with Charles Lawton. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, she's middle-aged by now. She's not playing the same kind of parts anymore, but here she is in this movie. Neat. The Maze was released in 3D on July 26th, 1953. Critical reception has been mixed from that day to now, <laughs> uh, with a lot of the criticism being directed at the film's finale. Okay. It is now in the public domain, and you can get it on Blu-ray from Kino Lorber, or find it on the Scream Scene YouTube playlist. Fantastic. Well, folks, if you want to watch along, you can find that YouTube playlist at our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Frog Boy in The Maze from 1953, directed by William Cameron Menzies. See you on the other side, everybody. I really hope it actually is like Frog Boy and not just like... We haven't really seen like a Frog Boy kind of... <laughs> like, design, everything's been, like, ape-based. Sure. Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Maze from 1953, directed by William Cameron Menzies. Ben, what did you think of this? This movie's great. I had a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really good. It's really well made. Um, you can't... Well, you can sort of tell where they cut corners to save some money. Oh, interesting. But uh, we can talk about that in the discussion but for the most part, it does not look like a cheap movie at all. Yeah, they, I thought they did a really great job. Yeah, yeah, if you haven't seen this one, check it out on the playlist. It's it's a good little buried treasure. 
definitely a B-plus movie. Right, yeah. Yeah. So, I think you can probably piece together the story from basically bits and pieces that we said during the context setting. But, Sarah, why don't you take us through the exact sort of plot details of The Maze? Absolutely. So, just as in the novel, the film has its story relayed by Edith Murray, and she tells us about her niece, Kitty, and her fiancé, Gerald McTeam. And I forgot to look up whether McTeam is a real Scottish name or just, like, someone coming up with a fake yeah, Scottish name. Yeah, that seems made up to me. Yeah. In any case, this is the happiest engaged couple to ever exist. They are just <laughs> super in love, super happy together. It's two weeks before the wedding, and Gerald's uncle, uh, the baronet of Craven Castle, has died. And Gerald is sent for to come and inherit the castle. So he heads up there, and he's like, Don't worry, baby. I'll be back <laughs> just in time for the wedding. But a week goes by, and there's no letter from Gerald. Uh, he hasn't responded to any of Kitty's telegrams. So Kitty and Edith go up to Craven Castle in Scotland to investigate. And when they get there, it looks like Gerald's aged like 10 years. He suddenly has graying temples and a scowl. Yeah, he's he, his personality's done like a complete 180, right? Yeah, and he's like, I don't want you here. I've called off the engagement. Like, why are you bothering me? Like, get out. He reluctantly agrees to basically let them stay that night. And then Kitty finds ways to make excuses for them to stay a little bit longer so she can keep investigating. Mainly using Edith, who is like an older woman, as an excuse of like, oh, she has a cold. She has to stay in bed. Yeah. As we said, Gerald is now pretty cold. Um, he's short-tempered. And he seems to be kind of hiding some of the goings-on around the house. For example, we hear from the two servants, William and Robert, that uh, the cleaning lady recently died. Uh, she was in the maze, which you're not supposed to do, and on the death certificate it says that she died of heart failure. Yeah, it's all very mysterious. Yeah, there's all sorts of like mysterious rules in this castle that, you know, fall into the general, like, don't go into the West Wing kind of category of things, but, like, you have to be in your rooms by 11, the doors get locked from the outside to anybody's rooms... Uh, you can't go into the maze that's outside. Um, I think those are the main ones. You can't go into the tower. Yeah. Some other mysterious things that um, go on is it's noted that all the past people to inherit Craven Castle um, have been... It's been from uncles to nephews, never like father to son. And noted later in the movie, no wives have been in the house for like the last 200 years. So Kitty is worried about Gerald's health. The servants don't really allow for a doctor to come in. So Kitty arranges for a friend of hers, uh, who is a doctor, to drop in and to bring his wife and another couple to kind of say, like, oh yeah, we were just, like, exploring the Scottish Highlands and came by, rather than an official kind of doctor visit. And through the course of the night, as the doctor is observing Gerald, he concludes, he's insane. Now, Kitty is, like, worried about this, because the doctor's like, I guess you have to institutionalize him. So Kitty's like, okay, 
I'm going to steal a key so I can get out of my room at night and get to the bottom of this mystery. I have to help Gerald. And Edith comes along as well. That night, they sneak out of their rooms, they head up to the tower, and they have to get away right quick before they're seen, but they notice things like seaweed on the floor and, like, a basket of apples on the floor and no furniture in this area. Every so often at night, uh, and this night as well, um, they hear, like, something being dragged along the floor, and in the climax night, um, we see the two servants and Gerald basically holding a sheet along the floor, covering whatever is, like, dragging itself along the floor. Gerald and the servants head into the maze, so of course Kitty and Edith follow, and they, I think the maze, we get, like, the same kind of set each time of just, like, the same couple of corridors, but the way it's shot is really well done, so it's not very obvious. Edith and Kitty have just a single light, they get separated, and then the light goes out. So now they're wandering alone, separated, in the dark. Edith is the first to come across this creature, and it's a giant frog! Mm-hmm. Frog boy lives! Mm-hmm. She screams and faints, and the creature just kind of scurries away, and then runs into Kitty, who again screams, and the thing again scurries away. Gerald finds Edith and Kitty and helps them get out of the maze. Meanwhile, the servants are chasing after this frog creature, now running through the hallways and upstairs, and or hopping, hopping through the hallways and upstairs. The doctor has a gun. And he shoots the lock off of his door, and he sees the creature running through the ho- hopping through the hallways, and he goes to shoot it, but the servants say, no, don't. So he doesn't. And the creature is so terrified that after it hops all the way up to the top of the tower, it, like, accidentally hops out of the window from the tallest tower, falling straight towards the camera in 3D, and dies. The next morning... Gerald kind of explains to everyone gathered in the, like, dining room that that frog was Sir Roger, the actual baronet of Craven Castle. And he was born in 1750 and died last night. And people are like, 200 years? That's not possible. It's not possible for a man to live that long. And Gerald's like, ah, but he wasn't a man. He was an amphibian. Because, as Ben explained in the opening about the understanding of fetus growth, fetus development, that's the word. Sure. Um, the idea of, like, a fetus going through every stage of evolution in the womb. Well, for Sir Roger, he stopped at the amphibious phase and was born and had to be hidden away. He had all the same intellect as a man, everything like that, but he hid away. No one would understand. But uh, now that he's passed... Um, Gerald is now officially the baronet of Craven Castle, and he and Kitty live happily ever after. Basically. (laughs) Basically. And you can kind of figure out that, like, the cleaning lady that died happened across Sir Sir Roger Roger. and had a heart attack as a result. It wasn't any kind of foul play, like, it's kind of implied to be, um, for the mystery. Um, but yeah, so that's the movie. Yeah, I don't think, I will say, 
that I don't think Sir Roger accidentally falls out of the tower. I think the story doesn't quite work, or at least is really weak, if that's the case. My interpretation of what was going on is, like, he, the women see him and he freaks out. But, like, when Gerald's giving the explanation, and, you know, this is, I'll get to this later, but this is, I have a bit of a problem with the way the ending is done here. Um, but when Gerald's explaining it after the fact, he talks about, like, yeah, he was, he was just so scared. And, like, you know, he, he refused to let anyone know he existed. So, you know, me and my uncle and his uncle before him or whatever, our job was to just be here and take care of him and kind of serve as, like, the face but, you know, he was really the true baronet the whole time. Uh, but he was afraid that people would reject him as, like, a monster. And so he stayed tucked away all the time. And, you know, maybe if he had just not been so secretive and let people know who he was, like, people wouldn't have freaked out. Which is, all right, Gerald. <laughs> That's a very optimistic view. Yeah. Um, but the impression I got is that once the lady saw him, you know, and he freaks out and runs away. And then, like, all these other people in the castle see him and he's freaking out. My interpretation was that he jumped on, out of the window on purpose. Mm. That he killed himself because he'd rather be dead than, like, have people know what he was. And they wouldn't be able to say explicitly that because of the code, right? Yeah. Which also brings me to the opening of this movie where Gerald's uncle, the previous... Baronet. Right. The, I was going to say, like, the previous caretaker of the baronet... Uh, Sir Samuel, he dies. That's how the story kicks off. But the way they find him dead is like... Implied suicide. Yeah, he's like slumped over in a chair. We don't see him from the front. He's got like one arm outstretched holding a knife. Like, yeah, he he kills himself, uh, clearly. So there's a lot of stuff like that in this movie where it's, you know, we can't quite say what's happening because of the code. But anyone who's got a couple brain cells to rub together can put the pieces together. Like the thing about like, Oh, there's been no wives for 200 years or whatever. Right. And it's like, Oh, well, because they're afraid of what if this is something that gets passed on or whatever. Right. Yeah. But I thought this was a really, really cool, really good movie. Yeah. It definitely is a beautiful, gorgeous movie. It's drenched in shadows. Mm -hmm. It does all the things you want from a Gothic horror secret passageways and those passageways are just absolutely filthy with dust secrets and you know the maze is sufficiently scary in the climax like it doesn't oh yeah like you feel claustrophobic almost um there's no point where it feels like we're wandering around the jungle set yeah for years on end yeah the thing that like this movie does that makes it so effective compared to other movies that we've been seeing for years now is that it doesn't look like it was shot like a corporate training video (laughs) like the cinematography here is really fantastic like you said drenched in shadows and the shadows and the cinematography are also helping out the production design which like the production design in this movie is great as you might expect given that it's from the guy who invented the job but they're working together to do what you also pointed out at the start which is like cover the low budget. Yeah. Right? Because I think you're probably right that the maze itself is probably just like that one sort of stretch that has like two, you know, flat ends at either side and then a couple of branching paths. Like, I think that's probably all it is. But you never feel like that's all it is because the movie's shot well enough that it disguises those angles. We do see the maze from a distance, like, Together. Yeah, not not quite a bird's eye view, but like seeing it from like 
a, a window up in the house or something. Right. And that's how you get a sense of its layout, as well as the fact that the reason... I don't know if you mentioned, but the reason they bring Sir Robert into the maze is because there's a pond at the center. Yeah, and he, he likes to go swimming at midnight. Yeah, because he's a frogman, and he's an amphibian, so he yeah. needs, like, water, else he's going to dry out and die, right? So, And I, I just kept thinking, like, so build, like, a little pool house <laughs> by the pond for him to live in. That, I mean, that's what the maze is. So No, but, like, in the maze. Yeah, but, like, Sir Robert hasn't let them modernize the castle at all. And my interpretation of that, because there's really no reason for it, is just that, like, he's from the 18th century and he doesn't like any modernization because <laughs> he, he wants it to be, you know, he, he doesn't like change. So Absolutely. I, I definitely that, get, like, old man vibes. Oh, yeah. So they'd be <laughs> like, well, let's just build you a pool house. And he'd be like, fuck no, this is my room. This is my castle. That's my maze. We do it the way I say. But um, we never see Sir Robert swimming around in the pool. We never see the pool. We see the maze from this, yeah, w wide angle, and we see the pool in its center, and we see all the twists and turns. But that's a model. Mm -hmm. Like, it's a scale model shot. We never see an actual set of the pool. Instead, while we're in the maze, they're using sound design such that as they're wandering around and they're trying to find out what's going on, you can hear something splash, splash, splashing in the pool, right? Yeah, the sound design in this movie is really well done. There are moments where, like, you hear someone from off left or off right to kind of give you a feeling of, like, you're in the space. Which mm -hmm. is really cool because this is 3D, so you kind of feel like you're in the space already. Um, especially for the tight shots, it kind of makes you still feel a little claustrophobic. And also with the sound of Sir Roger... Yeah. The frog boy. I, he's a man. He's a frog he's man. like two hundred years old. Uh the Sir Roger the Frog Man, um, because they don't have him make just like frog sounds. Like it sounds like there's a little bit of like the croak that you get from a toad or a frog, but then they've mixed in like elephant sounds and hissing sounds. Um, it's really well done because the costume they have, while it's good if there was a lot of light on it and he was walking around on two feet, it would look silly. So I really like all of the effects for Sir Roger in this movie. I do think they use a little bit too much of the elephant yes. in some of those sounds, but they need something that sounds like screaming, right? Because he's screaming and frogs don't really scream. So I, I see why they went that way. The suit, like, I think the sight of... So they keep Sir Roger, like, out of sight for the majority of the movie. You know... Classic movie monster style. Um, when we do see him, I do like that we get good enough looks at him that we don't feel, um, like, cheated. Yeah. But they do the smart thing that you're, you should do. They keep him mostly in shadow. They use lights to pick up highlights. They've put a lot of, like, water onto the suit so that it glistens. And the suit has, like, a really good toad or fraud-like bumpy texture so that they can put just a little bit of light on it, and it'll just pick up all those highlights along the texture with the water, so they don't have to, like, fully light him. Um, so you can see him, but it's not, as you said, like, putting on all the detail that lets you go, like, oh, well, that's a rubber suit. You know it's a rubber suit, because you're a human being, and you understand how <laughs> things work. Um, but I think it works really well. Not so much, like, he doesn't 
The one thing is he doesn't look like a frog man. He just looks like a, a man-sized frog. Yeah. But given that the explanation is supposedly that, like, he was born a frog, essentially, like, I guess that makes sense. Yeah. Um, um, apparently he speaks. We never really see it, but at one point um, the ser- one of the servants responds to a question posed by Frogman. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of neat. And we're also told that, like, he's he's actively running the castle and, like, yeah. its affairs and stuff and giving orders and things. So he must, yeah, be able to speak. The the thing about the Frogman suit, like, yeah, I think with the shadows, with the effects of the time, it's really well done. One thing I really liked was they, you know, he never stands up, which, as you said, would have been silly. Yeah, um, he stays in the crouched hopping pose. And they have the legs be too long. They have them be long frog legs. So that he doesn't have that problem that, like, um, you know, you get with, like, Anguirus or Baragon, like any of the kaiju in Japanese monster movies who are on four legs, where it's obviously a dude on his hands and knees because, like, the everything's still, like, proportioned sort of like a human. Yeah. Um, here... They've made the proportions frog-like, which helps separate it from the idea of being a man in a suit a bit more. So I think they do a lot of clever things to have it not be so silly. I think what's silly here and what can maybe get an unintentional laugh out of the audience, and I, I bring this up because all of the criticisms I saw of this movie were about the ending. And most of them were, oh, I saw the frog man and I couldn't stop laughing till the end of the movie. And that, like, that had ruined the entire build-up that the movie had, like, established. The whole mystery horror, you know, chiller thriller atmosphere. And I don't, you know, and a lot of people blamed it on the suit. They were like, oh, yeah, the stupid-looking rubber suit. And I don't really think it's the suit's fault. Like, I think the filmmakers do the best work that they can do to make a Frogman in 1953. I think the trouble is that for some people, just the, like very concept of a man-sized intelligent frog is like a step too far for them. Yeah. And that's what's causing the reaction. I I also like don't really favor movies that have a like scene at the end where it's like, well, let's just gather everyone and we'll sit around, have a cup of sherry and have you explain what everything is and have the explanation be, he never developed past the amphibious phase as a fetus which, like, here in 2020, obviously, we know that that's a debunked theory. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, like, really... It's still silly. Yeah. Uh, the problem is, is that I, like, I agree with you that having the explanation after the fact scene sucks. But there's also really no other way they could have done it with this movie. Yeah. Because, you know, the clues are all there. The movie plays fair with you. You can figure out what's going on. We figured out early because we already knew. Um, but like, you know, you can probably put together like, okay, there's a dude in the tower and he's a frog man. You can probably get there, but then it's like, why is there a dude in the frog in the tower and why is he a frog man? And how did that happen? You can't have any of that explanation first because it's going to ruin your reveal of the mystery, right? So you kind of have to get it after the fact, but it makes it feel very anticlimactic. My problem with the ending has nothing to do with him being a frogman or how the frog suit looks or anything like that. But it is that I thought the ending ends up being a little anticlimactic. Also, it's a little unclear in the moment. 
Like, I thought he was committing suicide, you thought he accidentally fell. Well, that's a problem with the fact that, like, we, we don't know Sir Roger's, why Sir Roger did that, or why he ran away, or any of that, until we know that he's a Sir Roger, you know, until that's explained to us after the fact. In the scene, as it's happening, it's just like, oh shit, a frog monster, and then he just hops away, and you're like, uh, okay, and then he hops up the stairs, and you're like, oh, okay, and the servants are chasing after him, and then he fucking hops out the window, and you're like, ah, okay. I think the ending, for me anyways, would have worked a little better, and been a little clearer in the moment, and a little more tragic, if the doctor had shot him. Yeah, I was surprised that he didn't shoot him. Yeah, because, like, so the the thing with the doctor and the friends who come over is they don't really serve a lot of purpose, plot-wise, I mean to say. Like, she's got this guy over here so he can examine Gerald, and he's like, oh, he's insane or whatever. But, like, the doctor never gets around to, like, institutionalizing Gerald. Like, if you took the friends out of the story, nothing that Edith and Kitty do would change. Um, so the doctor's just there as, like, a mechanism to get the gun into the house, right? So I was fully expecting someone to get shot, but no one gets shot. I don't think the doctor should have killed Sir Roger, because I think that would have made the ending where he has to explain everything, like, a little more awkward. But, like, he should have shot the frogman non-fatally, right? And then have the frogman freak out and, you know, run upstairs. And we understand now that, like, he's afraid and that he's been shot and he's been wounded and he's freaking out. And, you know, give us a little bit of time, a little bit of a moment before he jumps out the window, right? And then there's more tragedy because... The movie tries to emphasize that the tragedy of the story is, you know, that this guy was a man in the body of a monster, and so, you know, he couldn't live a normal life, otherwise people would freak out. Mm-hmm. And so we we needed to see more of someone freaking out, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point, because even Kitty, when she realizes, like, there are these frog prints, and um, Gerald was reading a book on teratology oh, they, they, he must be hiding a, a family member. Well, I need to go tell him that, like, I don't care about that. Yeah, because Kitty's focus isn't so much on, like, what's the secret in the castle. Kitty's focus is what the fuck happened to Gerald. It's clearly connected to the secret in the castle, so if I can solve the secret in the castle, I can fix Gerald. Yeah, and help him some way. It's funny, the movie takes such pains for its characters to not be... To paint them as someone who would not judge Frogman for being a frog. Right. But Frogman still has to be the monster. Right, exactly. I think the characters who work the best in this movie are Kitty and Edith. Um, yeah, Edith is great. <laughs> like Great screams. Oh, yeah. Um, Edith is played by Catherine Emery, who... I didn't mention in the intro because I didn't recognize her when I was doing my research. Um, she's 47 years old here. Uh, as an actress, she's probably best known for originating the role of Karen Wright in The Children's Hour on Broadway in 1934. This was her final film. Uh, she made 12 films overall in her career. She didn't die until like the 80s. Um, but one of her first films was Isle of the Dead in 1945 where she played the cataleptic Mary St. Aubin. That's the character who gets buried alive and then comes out all crazy and ghost-like. Yeah. Uh, she's great in that movie. She's great here. She's kind of almost like a rock that kind of anchors the movie. 
Definitely. But she, yeah, has fantastic screams. The strength of her screams alone just elevate this movie as a horror film. Both characters are shown to be... Like, okay, Kitty's a bit blinded by her love of Gerald, right? So she's making some bad choices, like going to Craven Castle and snooping around where she shouldn't. And inviting friends over. Right. But Edith, you know, she's shown to be a bit more practical. She's like, we shouldn't be here. We should get out of here. Not because of, like, any kind of cowardice on her part, but just because she knows this is a bad idea. Like, she can just pick up on that. But she's not, like, a weak, frail old lady. Like... There's a moment where Gerald finds Kitty in the maze, and he's like, get the fuck out of here, basically. And he ends up kind of hurting Kitty as he gets her out of the maze. And Edith's reaction is like, well, fuck that guy. He hurt you? Oh, I'm going to go give him a piece of my mind. And, like, she stomps downstairs. The only thing that stops her from confronting Gerald is that, like, he's not available at the time or whatever. And then later, like, she's the one who first goes to... She's the one who sees the Frogman first, right? Because she goes to, like, investigate because she's trying to get to talk to Gerald and be like, what the fuck, man? Um, And she spots the Frogman and screams and faints, right? So, like, both characters are very independent. Um, And they both have a lot of agency. Yes. They're both doing a lot in the movie. Yes. It's a really cool, like, young woman plus aunt protagonist team is really unique and helps like distinguish this movie I think from a lot of others because it's not like Gerald isn't one of the protagonists right like Gerald's a character in the story but our protagonists are Kitty and Edith um you know who are these great female characters who aren't brain dead and you know they're the ones investigating things so it helps break up kind of those standard archetype characters that you have in these movies. And I think the pacing in this movie is really well done. I didn't feel like we were dragging our feet at any time. Um, it, it really just keeps the story moving forward. We're not going back and forth from town to castle. Yeah, once we anything. get to the castle, we're at the castle, right? Yeah. The movie could have come across a little repetitive because they stay for, I think, like four nights. And... There's a pattern, right? You get locked in, you hear something shuffling in the halls, you see a light in the maze. But what the movie does that's smart is each night Kitty and Edith learn something new. Yeah, there's a new piece of the puzzle. Yeah, great performances, I think, in the cast. Um, As we've said, Catherine Emery really anchors the film. Uh, Veronica Hurst, who plays Kitty, really wants to be Grace Kelly. I don't blame her. <laughs> um, and I think Richard Carlson gives probably the best performance we've seen from him so far on the show, like, he, as Gerald. Yeah, he plays Gerald, yeah. Yeah, I think he's really good. Um, what's that guy, Michael Pate? Yes. He, uh, he's just a servant here. Um, he's the, yeah, he's like the head butler. Yeah, and uh, it's kind of like, what's that phrase, always the bridesmaid, never the bride? Yeah. Yeah, he's always the servant, never the master. Right. Someday, I'm sure. <laughs> the movie has, like, very classic um, gothic storytelling. Yes, and when tasty I, gothic goodness, as yes, I like to say. Yes, And it's, it's, like, when I say it's classic, I mean, like, this movie acts as if the gothic genre hadn't, like, 
split into very separate horror and romance camps over the last century, right? Like, all that stuff is right back together. This is, this is you know, in some ways, this is Jane Eyre, except instead of a madwoman in the attic, it's a frogman in the attic, right? Yeah. It, it gives it a very, like, unique feeling, uh, especially because it is mixing gothic tropes with, like, a modern-day setting and the big family secret is something that's explained by, like, some 1950s pseudoscience. Yeah. And it's, like, a dude in a rubber suit. Like, it's it's this really unique melding of elements. It does make me wonder... I don't know if that's if this is really something to dock the movie on. Mm. But for Maurice Sandoz, like, from what I read, everyone is like, oh, yeah, he's, like, the great Swiss surrealist writer. Mm-hmm. Even though he's not super well known, that's at least the thing he's known for. Right. And the only thing I could find that was like, here's why he's surrealist is this like explanation of his mysteries being not rooted in the supernatural, but still just as absurd. Right. I think we get that here. I think we get that, but I don't know, is that really surreal? Like it, I don't I have no I, idea I if that's really what call that surreal. surreal. Yeah, I I I to be fair, I'm sure Dolly would say some nonsense about how, like, surrealism is whatever a surrealist tells you it is. But, yeah, I, I sort of had the same thought of, like, I don't know if that's really surreal. But certainly, I think being told, like, hey, there isn't, like, a ghost or a monster. It is a dude who was born a frog and has been alive as an immortal frogman for 200 years. But, like, can talk and stuff. Like, that's... But it's science. Science right. explains this. Right, but it's some absurd science. Absolutely. Um, yeah, just like overall, um, I think the movie does a good job building its mystery. It has really good music, good atmosphere, good performances. Um, the As we've already said, the lighting and the set design help cover that this is a less expensive movie. Yeah, um, someone is using a spotlight to follow everyone when they just have like a candlelight and they're doing that really heckin' well. Mm-hmm. Like, the whenever they turn away with the candle kind of turning away and their, their body blocking the view of the candle, they go into the dark. Mm-hmm. Like, the spotlight ends, and then it comes back when they face the camera. Um, at one point when they're coming down the stairs, they have to go around this pillar, and it's not like the spotlight goes over the pillar, but that light continues, at, and it, it's not like it's blocked by a shadow. Like, it's really well done. Yeah, there's a lot of good use of 3D um, in terms of shooting for depth and having a lot of compositions that are shot in depth where, you know, we're not looking at hallways from the side. We're looking at hallways looking down them, right? Yeah. The depth was, like, something I was expecting and was not surprised to see because that was something Menzies did really, really well in Invaders from Mars. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we explicitly said, but the maze is in black and white. Yes. Um, It's not in the color process that Invaders from Mars is in. But honestly, I wouldn't want it to be in color because of the gothic milieu that they are in and the shadow that you need. Um, I, I wouldn't want this to be in color. Yeah, the aesthetic of this movie with its, like, big crumbly castle and fog and, you know, all of that, but with these, like really effective uses of light and shadow, it kind of feels like 1940s Universal and RKO, like, had a baby. Yeah, even some of the sets, like, uh, the opening engagement party, I swear that's the set from Leopard Man. Right. 
the castle itself, like the interiors, it has these like really narrow hallways and and rooms, but they all have super high ceilings. Yeah. And so it gives you this like weird almost claustrophobic feeling and the high ceilings are all emphasized because Menzies shoots everyone with like a lot of headroom in the frame, which is like super bizarre. Um, and this is all I think emphasized by the fact that this movie's shooting, you know, in uh, Academy ratio flat, which is to say like square uh, four to three so that you have this sense of like, instead of it being expanding out horizontally, it's all kind of like squished vertically. Which it's, I think helps with the depth and 3D yes. thing that they're going for, absolutely. Yes, and so it's this like mix of like expressionist aesthetics and classic horror aesthetics and film noir aesthetics and all of these things kind of coming together really well. Um, yeah, I think I think they did a great job here. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of weak points, but overall this is really good. Yeah. Last week when I sort of teased this movie at the end of the episode, I talked about Lovecraft. And this isn't, you know, based on anything from Lovecraft, as Sarah has explained. But if you're a fan of H.P. Lovecraft, I think you should give this movie a look. Because um, it does hit one of his favorite themes. Which is, you know, the something secret in the attic that's going to drive you crazy if you see it. And the degrading of, like, an aristocratic family into a, you know, degraded... Uh, fallen down kind of state because there's some sort of like horribly deformed like monster. Um, this is most well known in his story, The Dunwich Horror, but it recurs throughout his storytelling. Uh, some frogmen definitely show up in his storytelling, although they're not what The Dunwich Horror is. Um, the only thing this is really missing is like the cosmic horror angle because the explanation for Sir Roger's appearance is some weird pseudoscience, not like his mother got banged up by a space god. Yeah. Um, and you said that the, the pseudoscience of teratology would have been, like, accepted. Well, teratology isn't a pseudoscience. Um, teratology is the legit study of um, deformities and Yeah, stuff. but, like, the evolution of the fetus yes. thing. So that would have already been debunked scientifically by this point. Like, if you were a biologist in 1953, you'd be like, that's some bullshit. But, like, it was still, like, an idea in the popular consciousness. I see, I yeah. see. Well, let's move on to ranking. For sure. So I had, like, kind of a hard time figuring out where I wanted to put this. I eventually did find a nice little range, but I'm curious where you looked. So, like I said earlier, this is tasty gothic goodness. You know, that's right up my alley. Mm-hmm. Um, I think our, our highest rated gothic movie, I guess you could say, is um, Spiral Staircase and yeah, Old Dark House. Way up at number three. Three and four. Yeah. The, this movie is not that good. Um, it's good, but it's not that good. Yeah. So I started thinking about, you know, we, we didn't really talk about the use of 3D in the maze beyond the use of depth, but um, in the opening engagement party scene, um, <laughs> in, they are watching this I guess you could say dance routine, but basically these two guys are, like, tossing a girl back and forth, and she's doing, like, flips and stuff. It's like... It's like a dance routine mixed with a trapeze act. Yeah, and she's coming right at the camera several times, but that's the only, like, egregious use of, like, it's coming right at you. 
I think um, like until the end when the frogman falls right at you. Well, there was that bit when she's in the secret passage and there's those rubber bats on fishing line that come right at you. <laughs> right. But that opening scene, you think of House of Wax. Yeah. With the ping-pongs and the can-cans. So I, I looked at House of Wax at number 32. And I was like, you know what? That movie did really, really great stuff with the use of 3D, with the shadow, even with the color. So I wouldn't put the maze above House of Wax, but I thought maybe it could go below it. Hmm. And then I looked down, and I stopped at around Freaks. Sure. Because this this movie has a freak. You know, he was born in the 1700s. If he had not been rich and would have just been, like, given up to, you know, the passing circus. Sure. Um, Sir Roger would have been raised as Roger the Frogman. Right. Um, if raised at all, because 1700s are not a good time. Yeah. So, I, you know, Freaks is at 39. Now, Freaks, as we've said, it's from 1932. It's a very early horror movie. And the first half is a day in the life. And then the second half is the horror part. So I feel like because the maze is holy a horror, and the character design is very well done of, of Frogman versus um, Bird Lady at the end. Of oh, Freaks, sure, sure, sure. Which is, like, you know, pretty freaky and woof. But, I mean, like, their intents are different a mm-hmm. little bit. Um, I felt that the maze could stay above Freaks at 39. Um, so that's my range. 32, I guess 33 to 39. Hmm. Um, In there we have the 1949 Queen of Spades, Dead of Night, The Leopard Man, The Man Who Changed His Mind, the 1941 Jekyll and Hyde, and Son of Dracula, which would be very interesting to think and compare the gothic elements of it. So we ended up in really similar spots by a little bit of a different methodology. Okay. I also started out by thinking... What's the most recent gothic movie we've seen? Found out it was Spiral Staircase number three. Went, this isn't going that high. So I made my way down the list. And where my eyes landed was The Uninvited at number 31, which is also very gothic. Yeah. And I thought, like, okay, is this better or worse than The Uninvited? Well, The Uninvited has really effective ghost stuff. And it's actually supernatural. Right. Not that, you know, supernatural horror has any kind of inherent superiority to not supernatural horror. It's just that the supernatural element is very ingrained into gothic storytelling. Sure, and I think at the time when we saw The Uninvited, it was also abnormal because we'd never seen an American movie that didn't explain a ghost away at the end. Yeah. But I felt like I enjoyed the characters... In the maze a little bit more. The Uninvited has really good character psychology with the young girl, but it's like super weird that, um... The guy goes off to the young girl? Yeah, that the, like, middle-aged guy from Dial M for Murder, like, ends up in a romantic relationship with this, like, young girl by the end. So I wasn't quite sure, like, does this go above or below? Well, right above The Uninvited is Seventh Victim, which is good, but has problems. Mostly due to editing. So I thought, well, okay, what's above Seventh Victim? And above that's Vampire. I think The Maze is probably an easier watch than Vampire, 
But I also know that Vampire manages to create a horror mood and atmosphere that is never broken by anything. Like, yeah. you are in that nightmare from beginning to end. And the maze, we've, like I said, like, it didn't bother me, but critics often complain that, like, they're broken out of it by the goofy ending. So, my ceiling was number 30 to go below Vampire above Seventh Victim. That was the highest I'd go. Making my way down, there's House of Wax, there's Queen of Spades, Dead of Night. Uh, and then I saw The Leopard Man at 35, another Luton film. And The Leopard Man was not one of my favorite Luton movies. It has some really powerful scenes. Yeah. But that's about... That that really gives the movie its strength. Even the ending is a little tepid compared. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't come together into a strong enough hole. And I think the maze has a very strong hole. So that ended up being my range was 30 to 35. Okay. Well, my range, the overlap is 32 to 35. That's right. So I, I see where you're coming from with some Seventh Victim Uninvited. I disagree. Mm. So I I want to hear what you think about House of Wax versus The Maze. It, I don't know. It's an interesting comparison because they're both coming from, by 1950s standards, kind of an old-fashioned place. Yeah. Right? House of Wax is a remake of this old movie from the 30s. The Maze has these roots deep in traditional gothic storytelling. But in terms of, like, mood and pacing, they're very different. House of Wax is a lot more energetic, and The Maze is a lot more slow and steady wins the race. No, that's turtles, not frogs, Ben. <laughs> um, so it's a little bit difficult to compare them, but I think, for spectacle at least, House of Wax wins out. And I think, you know, The Maze is really good, I really like it, but it does feel like it should have been released ten years earlier. Sure. House of Wax, even though it's a remake of that old 30s movie, is, you know, pushing things forward in terms of the horror genre, in terms of the amount of, like, gore and, um, like, explicitness in its violence and the gross-out stuff and, you know, all of that. So what about with Queen of Spades? So 1949 is with Anton Wahlberg doing a really good um, performance showing... A guy who's just had it up to here about the rich young kids <laughs> jumping the line in his point of view for promotions and kind of going stir-crazy. They do a good job in the one scene of the ghost. Yes. And the climax of him going crazy is creepily quiet. Yes. Um, and quiet in a way that doesn't undercut the ending. Yes. Compare that to the ending we get of the maze where it's like, well, let me sit you down and tell you what the deal is. I think I wouldn't call queen of spades Gothic, but just the fact of like the old lady in her, in her apartments and like her secret backstory with the like 18th century Aleister Crowley guy and all that kind of stuff um, does give it some Gothic feels. I think Anton Walbrook's central performance is better than Richard Carlson's here. Mm -hmm. um, Richard Carlson's doing really good for Richard Carlson. 
he's not doing really good overall. <laughs> you know, like yeah. this movie needs because because this guy's you know needs to be a Rochester type, right? And he's not quite there. Well, it the problem is is that his one eighty from the best fiance ever to this tortured, angsty, Byronic character is, I think, too great. We don't see enough of the other Gerald in this guy. I think he does a great job performing as the angsty, Byronic character, but it's not that well integrated. And the trick to doing a Byronic character, you know, is, you know, if you take a look at, like, Orson Welles in Jane Eyre as Rochester, you need to be able to be a dark brooding asshole and attractive and charismatic and magnetic enough that it makes sense that the girl is still trying to get you anyway. Whereas Carlson is so standoffish that it's like the fact that Kitty still wants to stay and help him just makes her out to look like a saint, you know? (laughs) And I think you're totally right about the ending. Yeah. So I think the best spot for this is going to be below Queen of Spades, but above Dead of Night. Yeah, the uh, comic relief segment in Dead of Night really drags that one down. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm even, happy with that. Yeah, even some of the horror segments, like just some of them are a little weak, so. Yeah, cool. I like it. All right. Entering the list at the new number 34, The Maze, from 1953, directed as his final film by William Cameron Menzies. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line there. You can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, or reach out over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, uh, and you can also subscribe to the show using our RSS feed to listen to us on whatever podcast app you prefer. It's a big help to the show if you can head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a rating or a review. Uh, Reviews and ratings help the show get featured in the algorithm more, which helps the show get seen by more people. Another way to help more people find the show, though, is just, you know, to do the old-fashioned legwork and talk about it on social media. You can also help us out by heading over to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. There's a lot going on in the world right now, and we can certainly understand if uh, there's better places for your money to be going. But we appreciate everybody who can still help support the show. So that's patreon.com slash Podcast. What are we watching next week, Ben? Well, next week, Sarah, we're watching a movie I've been looking forward to for a long time because we've been kind of, like, dancing around it, it feels, for a while. Uh, because we've seen many movies like with the same premise or adapting the premise into a different story or like adapting the story but with like a lot of changes this is a straight up adaptation this is Donovan's Brain from 1953 based on the novel by Kurt Siedmak nice cool I'm looking forward to it me too see you next week Creatures of the Night bye bye bye